when I lived in Dallas, I lived the dream. And we're in this series called Living the Dream, finding joy in a world full of disappointment and no matter the circumstances and anxieties and all these different things, we're learning what it looks like to find joy. And when I think back to my time in Dallas, I really do think it was the dream. And I'm from Houston. So for that to be the case, it's like pretty tough because, yeah, uh, we got some Houstonians. Go Strohs, okay? That's right. Let's go. Amen. Praise God. Pray that I would get a ticket to game six or seven in the next two days. That's what you can pray for me for. Total side note. Anyways, so I'm from Houston. So it's crazy that I thought Dallas was living the dream. But here are a few reasons why living in Dallas for me was the dream. And and honestly, the first reason why was because I had the most amazing group of friends. And some people call it community, some people call it life group, some people call it disciple. You know, all these weird names that people have for just friendship now. And uh, I had this amazing group of friends. And it wasn't just a lot of my friends from college at Baylor that moved to Dallas. It also was everyone from around the country that I, like, did life with when, through college when I worked at this summer camp. All these incredible people I looked up to, even peers, we all just converged on Dallas, for whatever reason. And so my group of friends, legitimately, they are leading ministries all throughout Dallas, even right now. Like Highland Park K-Life director was one of my boys. The Fort Worth porch guy was one of my boys. And we're all just like wee little guys. We were just trying to learn what it looked like to, you know, be a fish in the real world. And so this Dallas, this season in Dallas was amazing. So I had incredible friendships. And then I also had an incredible place of work. Like my boss was amazing. My team was amazing. It was so fun. We loved what we did. We worked for an incredible church. We were being, I was being trained at the time, all these different things. And, and then, so, so Dallas, I have the job. I have, I have all the friends and I even have a dog and I have the best kind of dog, okay? I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a huge dog guy. I like dogs. I don't love dogs. It's, you know, whatever. I'm not normal, but it's fine. And, uh, but I had a dog. I lived in a back house. And it's the best kind of dog when you don't have to take care of the dog. Do you know this? If your roommate has a dog, it's the greatest thing in the world. And so that's pretty much what happened. My roommates, or, you know, I was in the back house. So the people that owned the house had a dog. And so I got to enjoy a dog when I wanted to enjoy a dog, which is the best way to enjoy a dog. And so I have this dog. So I'd walk it when I want to walk it. I'd play with it when I want to play with it. And I don't have to feed it ever. And so this is the best way to have a dog. So everything in my life is amazing. And you know, if you know anything about Dallas, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities, a lot of fish in the sea. You know, if you're looking to date someone, there are people to date. There are all these different things and reasons why Dallas was amazing. And then to top it all off, I lived in Highland Park. Ooh, yeah, go Scots. And so here's the deal. Like I've, I peaked early in this life. Like HP is where we're all trying to be one day, okay? Like this is the place. Like it's just mansions. It's beautiful. It is incredible. I lived in a back house. I didn't pay rent. So to live in Highland Park for free is like a miracle. And so I, as I said, lived the dream in Dallas. And for whatever reason... God called me to Waco. And I remember driving this U-Haul back to Waco. I'm not kidding. I don't know why y'all are laughing. This was a sad day. I'm leaving HP to move to Waco. And I'll never forget this, this kind of conversation I'm having with God in the car of confusion. 
truly, I'm like, I'm leaving my friends. And they're not just friends. They're people I look up to. They're people that have sharpened me. They're people that have helped me to live and break through and actually find what life really looks like to follow Jesus. And, and I remember vividly, I'm on I-35. And I can see I-20. I'm like hardly out of Dallas. I'm like kind of still in Dallas. And I remember God just saying, don't look back. And I looked at the rearview mirror and, and there was none. <laughs> and I just went, <laughs> you know, I just wept like a baby. I'm like, oh my gosh, God is really speaking to me. There's no rearview mirror on this car. He just, or on this U-Haul. And he just told me not to look back. Like this is insanity. And I, I'm like, I'm never gonna forget this. This is gonna make a great sermon illustration one day. Like I can't wait. But, but I, I start with that with that tonight, because since the day I left Dallas, I've been trying to learn contentment. Because I know I'm supposed to be here. Like, it's clear as day. And many of you are here as students, and you know this is where you're supposed to be. But there are these things in our mind where we're like, well, what if I was there? What if I had that? What if I have what they have? And all of a sudden, life isn't necessarily the way we imagined it to be. And so tonight we're going to talk about living the dream and our, finding our contentment in Christ, in Christ alone. We're going to see three things very quickly. One, what contentment isn't. Two, what contentment is. And then three, how do we get it? You see, I think there's this confusion with contentment that usually we think that contentment stems from circumstances. And that's a lie. Contentment doesn't come from circumstances. We think that if we have this certain level of highs, let's say we, you know, you know, we get a, a certain amount of good grades in a week or we talk to somebody and it goes well. All these different things in our lives have to go well and our families are, are, are somehow, our family dynamic is going well. All these different things socially, if it goes to a certain level in our week, then we're like, oh, I found contentment. And, and so we think contentment is is this is based on the circumstances around us, but that's not true. Contentment is not based on circumstances. And in fact, I'd even venture to say contentment isn't happiness. I got a text yesterday and it made me happy. And then I forgot about the text and I've, the happiness left, right? Like that's certainly not contentment. That's really fleeting and very quick. And uh, thank you to the person that sent me a sweet text. But here's the deal, like contentment isn't this quick thing and it's not this thing based on the roller coaster of life, just when things are going well, you find it. That's actually not the case. But it's also not this thing we find very quickly. It's not this pill we take, but rather I would venture to say we're gonna see from the scriptures tonight that contentment is not a pill, but rather a process. Contentment is not a pill, it, it's a process. And, and then lastly, it's not complacency, or passivity or laziness. I, I wanna just pause very briefly because there's this thing that people have been starting to talk about called uh, uh, divine discontentment, where it's like God has this, given you this desire and this conviction to go and do something. And I want you to know that I, I believe that's holy. And I'm not talking about this form of discontentment and divine discontentment. I'm actually talking in particular about possessions, circumstances, and timing. 
if you want to write this down, possessions, circumstances, and timing. Or maybe another way to look at it is in the seasons. And what I want you to think about is if there has ever been anything in your life that's consumed you and you've thought, if only I could get that thing, whatever it is, whether it be a possession, a circumstance, or a timing, Right, If you can just get to that place, then all would be well. Then I would finally get content. I would finally be content. And it's that thing that maybe you believe that everyone else has, but you don't have for whatever reason. I don't know what it is, but it's that thing when others have it, you just get jealous. And it's this thing that you, you think you will, when you receive, you will find contentment. So you have a few of these things in your head and maybe even think back to, you know, what were the things that you were discontent about when you were in high school? I know that's weird to think about, but I want you to even consider those things for a moment because I'm going to come back to those things. Let's just consider all the things that we've thought, man, if only one day I, I get to there or I have that, then I can be content. We're going to look to Philippians 4 verses 11 through 13. to see what is contentment. We just saw what contentment isn't, and we're going to see what it is. Starting halfway through verse 11. I have learned in whatever season I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger Abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. If you um, maybe haven't been with us these last few weeks, what you need to know is that Paul is actually writing from prison. So what he's saying is absolutely insane. Like if you think you have it bad, whatever's going on in your life right now, homie is in shackles and he's like, I've learned it. Oh, can't go that far, right? He's like, this is holding me back, but I still got it. I'm somehow still gonna pin this letter to the church in Philippi, right? I don't even know how he does it, but I just know that this is what has happened. And because of this and through this, he has learned something. There's some sort of secret in whatever situation he can be content. I love this. If you can look at this again, brought low or abound, it's like this or that. Every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's like this roller coaster. He's like, no matter the roller coaster, I'm good. I've got it. We see that contentment is a trust. And it's a trust in God's provision and his timing. It's a trust in God's provision and his timing for the circumstances, possessions, timing, and, or maybe even seasons that he's given us. And we know in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes, to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It's kind of a command. And the reason why we should be content with what, what you have, the author of Hebrews says, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Like he is going to provide within his perfect timing in whatever way he wants to. And so in some ways, he might not provide. He gives and he takes away. But Paul is saying, no matter what, I've learned it. So contentment isn't a pill. It's not this quick thing. It's, it's something that is learned over time. It's a trust. 
It's a trust. And what I love about this picture of contentment is when it comes to provision and timing, I think let's take a step back for a moment and just think about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and his, his being God, coming down to this earth, living a perfect life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserve, and then resurrecting from the grave to prove he was who he said he was. And so he provided us forgiveness of sins through his blood shed on the cross. That's the gospel. And what's crazy about the gospel is it's this perfect picture of provision and timing. And, and some of us are like, yes, 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 next. I, I, need, I, I need something better than that, right? But what, what, what I want you to see is that oftentimes with the gospel, what we don't realize is that we're trying to work our way to God. We're trying to earn his love back and we're not trusting in his provision and we're not trusting in his timing. And if, if you're not one of those people, maybe you're like, no, I do trust the gospel. I do believe in salvation. Like, I, I don't really believe that he hasn't forgiven my sins. I actually think that's the greatest news in the world, and I'm following Jesus. What I want you to see is that it's weird that we trust him for our salvation. We just don't trust him for other stuff. Like, we trust God for our salvation, but not for other stuff. It's this weird thing. It's absolutely crazy that we would trust that one day, He's going to wash away sin and resurrect us from the dead. Think about how crazy that is. And you're like, yeah, I believe that. But I just don't believe that if I leave this place without a job, I, I, I can't believe that God is good. Or if, I, if somebody in my family gets sick, like I can't believe that God is good. But we believe he can forgive our sins. You see, contentment is this trust in God's provision and timing. And I want you to know, because God has given us his provision of his son in Jesus, he's proved that he's worthy to be trusted in. You're not going to get everything you ever want in this life. And you have to trust that God is good in spite of that. This is the antithesis of, this is like the opposite of the prosperity gospel that's going around these days. But God is worthy for us to put our trust in him. But the reality is we have an obsession with what is next. We have an obsession with what's next. Here's what I mean by that. When you're in high school, you're a freshman. You're like, I hate freshman year. I just want to get out of freshman year. You get to sophomore year, like, oh, this is great. But really, if I could only get to junior year, get out of the you know, the JV stage of life. And if I could just get to the upperclassmen stage of life where finally I can, you know, go from third chair in the orchestra to first chair in the orchestra for all my orchestra friends, for all two of you that are here. I'm glad that you're here. And so, like, we just, it's all about, like, what's next, right? And then you get to college, freshman year, even in the fall. If we got any freshmen here? Okay. Oh, a few of you. Oh, everyone's a freshman. Good. This is perfect. So, so here's the deal. Like the next season, the next season is all about the spring. You've probably heard the lie that you're all of a sudden going to find all your friends in the spring. I'm like, who, who made up that lie that all of a sudden you're going to find friends in the spring? <laughs> you, that might let you down a little bit. And so here's the deal. Like it's all about what's next. It's all about what's next, the, the next season. Let's say you, you were in the spring, freshman, you get to the spring of freshman year, and you're like, this is kind of cool, but I can't wait to get to this summer and do whatever I'm going to do this summer. And then you get to sophomore year, and you're like, wow, this is the dream. 
Sophomore year is amazing, but I really am not taking the classes I want to take yet, right? You're like, I just, I, I think there's going to be a day where I can actually take the classes I want to take that are actually meaningful, and then I'll actually start working hard is honestly the lie that you're also telling yourself as well, but that's fine. I get it. I've been there, and I somehow graduated. So, uh, so you're at junior year, you're finally taking all the classes that you want to take, right? And then, and then you're looking towards that internship. You're just trying to, you know, get to that internship, to put it on your resume. It's always about what's next. Well, and then you get to senior year, and, and senior year is the pinnacle year where you have to answer the question, well, what do you want to do with your life? And it's really not the best question. It's actually the most annoying question you're ever going to have to deal with when you're a senior. Just trust me. And so you're like, man, what's next? What's next is all anyone ever wants to talk about, and you hate it. And then you graduate. And I'll just go ahead and fill in the rest of it for you. You get to Dallas like everyone else, like me, and you go to Dallas. And what's next is, it's like, who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? How many kids am I going to have? My, my, two of my roommates, as I told you the other week, are on their second kid. They're, I got two in the cooker, right? actually three in the cooker right now. Big news this week in, in our household. It's amazing, right? Roommates from college. Excuse me. Some of you are totally confused. But here's the deal. <laughs> I'm like talking to myself up here. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we have an obsession with what is next, and it's keeping us from having the joy we were meant to have. It's keeping us from being the light that we were meant to be in this world. We're so focused on that that we can't enjoy and even look around to the people around us and serve the people around us because it's all about us and what's next. Verse 13 is this famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I remember quoting it to a kid when I worked at the camp. So he would jump off the zip line and say, Lord, forgive me. And everyone else that's ever misquoted this. This verse isn't about us necessarily being able to do something. This verse is about a God who gives us strength to handle life. Contentment is finding strength in another which means in some ways we're weak. And when the roller coasters of life, abundance and need, plenty and hunger, when those things come, whether they're hard or they're easy, our strength comes from God Himself. And that keeps life from becoming the roller coaster that it could be, honestly. And I love the difference. I love my hand going like this. I don't know if you caught that. But this is like one of my favorite things. This is the way life feels and seems and honestly can be. But there's this reality that we have this rock. There's an alternative where we can step to the other side and we can just trust in God's provision, of, in God's provision and God's timing. And it's this beautiful thing called contentment. And I want to show you an example of contentment very quickly. There's a bunch in the Old Testament and uh, I, there's Psalm 16, you know, our lot has fallen in pleasant places. There, uh, Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But I, I want to just talk about Abraham real quick. I want to highlight Abraham. Here, here's the story of Abraham in uh, the Dale Wallace Sparknotes version. So uh, just bear with me. And uh, so Abraham is this guy that God calls to a place that he will show him. God shows up to Abraham and says, you know, go to this place that I will show you. So all of you that are worried about clarity in your life, just know Father Abraham didn't even have clarity. God was just like, go that way. And he started walking this way and he lived by faith. And, and God appeared to Abraham and he said, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. 
And in this covenant, I'm going to give you land, seed, and blessing. And that's like speaking gibberish. All you need to know in this particular story is that we're going to talk about seed. Abraham was promised offspring, but Abraham was an old dude. And so was his wife, Sarah. And so God is like, I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars are in the sky. And Abraham's like, that's kind of weird because I'm super old. And my wife is old too. And that she's really the problem here. You know, this is like impossible for you to create descendants when we don't even have one, right? And so, so God says, you know, you, it, it, he comes back to Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I'm going to be, I'm going to have you bear a son in a year. And this is when Sarah laughs. And even Abraham was, was, was learning contentment. He's learning to trust in God and his provision and his timing, even though it seems unlikely, right? They're old. And so we, we find ourselves in this place where God says, I'm going to, I'm going to have you bear a child in a year. And then they do. And it's this beautiful thing. I'm going to turn to Genesis. It's this beautiful thing when, he, when God allows Sarah to bear a child. And I love Genesis 21. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. Like in God's perfect timing, God knew what was going on the whole time. He's like, I'm going to provide it for you and you're not going to believe it. I can do anything that I want. And what's beautiful about this is it goes on. God is, is, is showing Abraham and allowing Abraham to learn to trust in him. And then we find ourselves in this place just after Isaac is born, this son that's going to provide offspring as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and then God's like, okay, hey, I want you to kill your son. It's a crazy story. God clearly tells him, go and sacrifice your son. And so Abraham packs up some sticks and takes his son and they start going up on a hike. And he, he, he goes and he, he sets up this altar in chapter 22. And finally, Isaac's like, wait a second. Where's the animal we're going to kill, right? It's just you and me. There's no sacrifice here. And what does Abraham say? God will provide provision for himself, the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And all, they start building this altar, and there's no sacrifice. So Abraham puts his son Isaac on the altar and it's like this crazy story. It says he bound Isaac to the altar. And then he pulls out his knife to kill the homie, his one and only son. He's about to kill him and an angel of the Lord stops him. And it says, he said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your only son. And in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You notice in God's perfect timing, God gave Abraham and Sarah a son. And also in God's perfect provision and timing, he allowed Abraham not to sacrifice his one and only son, but actually gave him an alternative 
And this is a beautiful picture of the same way the Father has provided for you and me. He didn't withhold his one and only Son. He sent him. So that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And not just this eternity that's amazing, but also those who follow him, that put their trust in him, will find fullness of joy in his presence. That one day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That, that this is where life is found, trusting in the provision and timing of the God of the universe. That's contentment. And this is how Abraham has shown it for us. And so lastly, how do we learn contentment? I'll go quickly. Another question could just be, how do we build trust? In this world, like how do you build trust? It's a pretty natural question. And the answer is T-I-M-E. Time. For those that don't know how to spell how do you build trust? How do you, how do you learn contentment? You spend time with God. You relate to him. You learn about him. You, you read his word. In fact, the Bible is filled with these stories of God proving that he's trustworthy. Think about that. The entire Bible is God just proving over and over again that he is worthy to be trusted in. From Genesis to Revelation, that's what the whole thing's about. And I just want you to, to realize it, it requires time for us to rightly trust him. Just think about dating and relationships. They're simply spending time with someone to determine if you trust them enough to choose them. That's all it is. You, you learn trust over time to see whether or not they're, they're worthy to be trusted. And that's what the Bible is for. And I want you to, to know that discontentment is usually a sign for me that I'm not abiding. And so what do we do with the things that we're discontent about? How do we learn contentment? We, we surrender that which we are discontent about. Just as Abraham surrendered his one and only son, Isaac, he was like, I'm not getting anything in the way. I'm obeying the Lord at all costs. I'm putting it on the altar. I'll kill him if I have to. And then the angel of the Lord provides. And so some of us tonight need to surrender those things that are keeping us from finding joy, the joy we were made to live with, whatever it might be. And, and honestly, this requires honest prayers. Some of us need to write this down. Like, we need to have honest prayers. God, why did you make me this way? God, why can't I have that? Like, you can yell at God. I'm going to give you permission. I'm yelling at y'all right now. Like, it's allowed, right? Like, why wouldn't you be able to yell at God? He can handle it. He already knows what you're thinking. I want you to consider having an honest conversation with the Lord. So that we might surrender and give up the things that, that make us discontent so that we might trust in maybe the way we were made and the ways that he gives and takes away. And all of our possessions, our circumstances, and our timing. Lord, whatever it is, would you just take it? 
It reminds me of trusting in the Lord with all your heart and not leading on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledging him and he'll make your path straight. It reminds me of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All these things being the, the, the possessions, the circumstances and the timing, all these things that you actually need, they'll be added at the right time. But what's crazy is we, we just get so caught up in our heads. There's so much in the rear view mirror. There's so much in the grass is always greener. And I have a brief confession. When I was in Dallas, I was experiencing the same discontentment that I am now. It wasn't this new thing that because I was driving to Waco, I experienced. It was this unending, but if only I could have the next. And as I was thinking about all this, I remember back to when I was a kid, the thing that I was like, most envious of, and y'all are gonna make fun of me for what I'm about to show you, but this is vulnerable, okay? This is as vulnerable as it gets. When I was in high school, there was this thing that everyone else had, and I wanted it so bad, and life revolved around it, and, and, and I only had this guy right here, okay? This is, y'all chill. This is all I had. And I, I have a single mom, like, it, like I, I couldn't always have the coolest phone and all the, the nicest things. And, and so this was all I had. And you know what everyone else had? You know what the thing is that I really wanted so bad? It was this. Anybody know what this is? The Motorola Razor. This is amazing, right? Like this is the coolest thing ever. I kid you not. I wanted this thing so bad, it's embarrassing. Just look at these things. Isn't it stupid? Isn't it silly? Like legit, I just bought this razor and I kind of felt good about it. I was like, I'm gonna buy this thing. This is awesome. I've always wanted to buy one. I never got one, right? I might go back to it just for kicks. <laughs> but it's so silly in retrospect, because I can look back and go, man, God provided abundantly in all the things I've ever needed. And he just never gave me a razor until I was, you know, old enough to buy one off Amazon on my own, right? Some of these things that we're waiting for and, and we're discontent and we're gonna look back one day and just go, man, what was I thinking? Why did I lose so much sleep about that? We have to learn to trust and a God who perfectly provides within his perfect timing. And I wanna close with this. There was a guy who taught here years ago. And the first time I ever taught here, he talked about setting your life on the rock. And the rock was Jesus Christ. He taught from the Sermon on the Mount and it was this beautiful night. And, and just before this night happened, he had been diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. And so he came and it was this beautiful picture. He was like, he is worthy to be stood on, like stand on the rock. It was amazing. He's like, I have stage four stomach cancer. I haven't even been given a year to live, but I stand on the rock of Jesus. And we're all just like, this guy's crazy, but this is awesome. And he was actually, he, he, was, he had this incredible impact on this world. His name was Nabil Qureshi. He wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And what's crazy is six months later, he came back. He came back to vertical. He actually came back and stood on this stage. And just before I drove him up from Houston, he was puking the whole day. We had to stop in College Station. He took a nap. 
He was out of, out of energy, out of everything. He had no fluids. It was like hard for him to even function. And he stood on the stage and he said, Jesus is still worthy to be followed. You can still trust in him. And he taught on suffering. And it's this beautiful picture that I have to think back to consistently. That although his life was a roller coaster and he was as low as low could have been, he was consistently pointing us to the, to the cross and he was telling us and reminding us to stand on the rock. And what's crazy is, and God's perfect provision and God's perfect timing, he was healed as he went on to eternity. And I think back to Nabil and I just remember he knew that Christ was enough. May it be for all of us as well. May the Lord be all of our shepherds. Would Christ be enough? Would your provision and your timing of your son on the cross be enough for us all? Would that be what we believe upon that saves us, that forgives us of all the sins of our past? Would we we just believe that you love us no matter what we've done in this world? We don't have to clean ourselves off, Lord. You, you have shown us your love that while we were still sinners, you died for us. You knew what we were gonna do and you still died for us. So thank you for the provision of grace that is so undeserved. And thank you for the timing of it. That you love us right where we're at today. Even if we didn't read our Bibles, even if we've never read our Bibles in our lifetime. You're like, I've never read the Bible. Like, God loves you today. You don't, it's not something you do for him to love you in this very moment. He loves you right where you're at. Whether you're addicted or whether you're living in freedom. He loves each and every one of us. Lord, thank you for your provision and your timing. Would you help us to believe in it? Would we spend time with you so that we learn to trust you? And Lord, I pray that this group of students would so deeply live in contentment that they would change the world. That everyone around them would wonder, why is the world filled with chaos and noise? Yet these people have peace. These people are, have something that I can't even describe. What is that? Who are they? What's different about them? Lord, would you be our shepherd? And shall we not?